0: Like, most people's voices for their dogs are like, oh, I'm a dog. That's cool.
1: I'm Alex Higley. And I'm
2: Lindsay Hunter. And And I'm I'm a a writer. writer, but... Welcome to I'm a Writer But, the second season, in which we are going to interview the author of the second season, Emily Adrian. She's the author of Everything Here is Under Control and the aforementioned second season, as well as two critically acclaimed novels for young adults. Originally from Portland, Oregon, Emily currently lives in New Haven, Connecticut with her husband, her son, and her dog named Hank. Welcome, Emily. Alex and I loved your book, and we are so stoked to hear you read tonight. Thank you. Stoked to be here. Um, Okay, so I'm going
0: to read from something close to the beginning, but not the very beginning, because Alex already read the very beginning on a prior episode. It's true. Um, So the only context one needs is that Ruth, the main character, is in a hotel room after an NBA finals game. And her husband, who also worked the game and is staying in the same hotel, has just sent her a text message. This is not her husband. Her ex-husband has sent her a text message asking her to come down to his room. Ruth leaves her phone charging on the nightstand and takes the whiskey. She steps into the brightness of the deserted hallway. Room 708 is seven floors down, directly beneath hers. The elevator doors slide open with an indiscreet ding. The elevator is not empty. Against the mirrored wall slumps Emery Turner, one enormous hand buried in his curls, the other cupped around his phone. Between the conference finals and media day, Emery went to the barber. Ruth has already noted the clean edges of his signature low fade. Distracted by his strength and his size, during his rookie season, Emery, still a teenager, grew a final two inches. Journalists rarely observe that the man is classically beautiful, that his black skin is baby smooth, practically poreless or that his smile evokes crisp suits and red carpets. Ruth exclaims his name with high-pitched girlish delight, her voice in this moment unaltered since high school. Annoyance creases Emery's forehead as he moves to stall the elevator doors. You going down, he asks. Ruth is frozen, with confusion because Emory Turner does not seem to recognize her, with self-consciousness because if he does recognize her, she is wearing leggings and no makeup and carrying an open bottle of liquor by the neck, and with alarm because Emory Turner should not be here. He lives in Seattle with his wife and two girls. To step foot inside the Juniper tonight is to cross enemy lines. It's reckless. Anyone could see him and snap a picture and set rumors aflame. Emory Turner is blackmailing Darius Lake into losing the finals on purpose. Emory Turner is having an affair with a Wildcats PR assistant. Emery Turner is taking clandestine meetings with Cincinnati's front office in advance of his free agency. Emory's features are strained with impatience. He repeats his question. Ruth has heard that women in their 40s are invisible. A woman her age could kidnap a child, shoplift a Le Creuset Dutch oven, or spit on a cop. And witnesses would disbelieve their own eyes. Ruth, being famous, being primped and pampered and televised, has neither enjoyed this phenomenon nor withered as a result of it. Maybe occasionally, pushing a shopping cart through the aisles of Target at 8 a.m. on a Wednesday, her yoga pants and ponytail, the uniform of suburban motherhood. She has felt youthful eyes measuring her as they would an upcoming pothole, registering not a woman, but a certain amount of space to be avoided. More often, people see her and whisper or stutter or scream her name. Now she feels it, the invisibility. Emery Turner is looking through her. Ruth has had dinner with his wife. She has held his daughter and laughed when the infant rooted against the silk folds of her blouse. In locker rooms, she has seen Emery in nothing but a towel held noncommittally around his waist. If she's being honest, she has seen him without the towel too, though she always looks up up toward the impossible height of his shoulders, his jaw, because she is a professional and a prude. The man who described Ruth Devon as the goat on national television is staring into the hallway, seeing only the inconvenience of an awestruck fan. No, Ruth says, you go ahead. Emery nods and steps back. Standing straight, his head nearly collides with the elevator ceiling. As the doors slide shut, Ruth thinks she sees a change in his expression, A spark of recognition, a surge of regret, this could be wishful thinking. Ruth is tempted to tell Roxanne about the sighting. Roxanne has been working on a piece analyzing the effects of the season's biggest trade deal, and she's hungry for the kind of details that braid each player's performance with his personal life. But without knowing what Turner was doing in the Wildcats Hotel, the detail would be merely intriguing. And if Emery did, after all, recognize Ruth standing dumbly in the hall, he would know who outed him. But the players think of her concerns Ruth more than it does Roxanne, in part because Ruth interacts with them on television in emotional moments when most men struggle to mask their true feelings, and in part because she wants them to like her the way she likes them. Ruth waits a moment before pressing the button, ensuring the elevator unloads its passenger before returning. By the time she hears the whirr of the elevator's ascent, she has changed her mind. The tips of her ears feel hot. She is suddenly profoundly
2: tired and certain that Lester has nothing she needs. I love that scene. I'm so glad that you read it. Um, it's indicative of, of what happens throughout the book where, and I feel like it's very indicative of, of professional women in general, um, or women in general that, you know, we're constantly trying to see ourselves through others' eyes. And we, we, you know, when that aligns with how we want to be seen, we feel powerful. And when it doesn't, it's crushing. Right. And, um, and Ruth is constantly trying to be what she is needed to be in order to achieve this thing that she wants to achieve. um, And, and it feels like, you know, two steps forward and, five steps back and, you know, the doors are closing in front of her and Emery is like, you know, it's too late for him to recognize her at that point. Um, so I, I just, I thought that was such a great, such a great moment and such a, such a way to set up, you know, the rest of the book. Thank you. Yeah.
0: I thought about, um, because the book is based on Doris Burke, right. Who is um, a little bit older than like most women on TV and She's very in control of her appearance and the way she sounds. And so I think it's like very realistic that if like, I don't think it's guaranteed, but I think if a a player saw her out of context, especially if he's motivated to not be seen himself, like, I think it's realistic that he sees her like wearing no makeup in pajamas or whatever, and like, doesn't know who that is. Yeah um which is which is wild because like most of us don't have such a huge disparity between like how we look in our pajamas and how we look to our friends and family
1: I know one way you've talked about the book is you know it's a it's a deeply researched alternate history like that is one way to think about this book like the sonics exist in the universe of this book and also the kind of research you had to do on Doris Burke is not stuff that you can just Google. Like it's stuff you have to talk to professionals and like really understand the nuance of the beats of their day. Um, What I was curious is like, if you start with the, just thinking about the scene, just read Emily is like, with all that research and like setting up a world that is familiar to an NBA fan, familiar to a casual sports fan, but also like created when did you get to the point in drafting where you were able to have room to just like make fiction, like what you just did, like where you were able to like get in the head of Ruth and you felt confident that you could just go with this character.
0: It, that was actually like the hardest part because you can't get very far in the action without needing to know if it's accurate or at least accurate enough to sort of not be distracting um, to somebody who knows what would happen in that world um so it was kind of like I would outline a chapter and then sort of answer the structural questions I needed to answer via research and then would sort of let it rip um and there were still like there were times where there were like large placeholders where I was like okay I need to check whether this could really happen or what the terminology would be surrounding this scene. There were scenes that had to go because they felt right to me for the story that did not make any sense um, in terms of what Ruth would be able to do or, you know, in terms of like what her schedule would allow. But like originally, I think in that scene that I just read, she actually like goes with him and they go like have a drink in the hotel lobby or something. Um, and the, and it was a good scene in terms of like character development, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized, like, this would never happen. Like, this NBA yeah, yeah, yeah. player is not just having a drink in this hotel right now. And I tried to, like, kind of lampshade it where there's all these reasons why it's working. Like, the bar was closed, but they let him into, like, a back room. And then, but it, it was ultimately so, like, so many things needed to fall into place to allow that scene to happen, that it was too distracting, and it just had to go.
2: I really love the idea that um, because it's sort of shocking to the reader that that Ruth is going to go to Lester's room because she's in a relationship and um, it's shocking, but it also feels like, you know, um, something that could happen because they have all this history. Um, And then I love that the scene ends with her being like, no, fuck it. I I don't, you know, and and abandoning that idea, which feels like even more, um, like even more real, you know, like it, it, it's such a great it's such a great way to, um, I guess, to really show her tiredness, right? Like she, her fed upness with, <laughs> with this, with this world. Um, yeah. You say in your acknowledgements, thank you to Dan, um, because he's the one who said that's Doris. When you said, yeah. who's that? Do you remember when you first, I don't know if it was cause you heard her or you saw her um, and you thought I'm going to write about her. Do you remember the first scene that you wanted to write with her?
1: Her um
0: image? Yeah. What it was, was it? it's actually it, the first scene I ever wrote is the first scene of the book.
1: Huh.
0: So if you start researching as I did the beginning of her career, it starts in the same way. She mm-hmm. was a player. Um, she had a tiny bit of experience like calling I think women's college games um for her alma mater. And then one day after her own child has suffered like a sort of traumatic but ultimately fine injury um, she gets a call to come in and and announce like a a fairly consequential game I now the details of Doris Burke's actual life like blur together in my mind with the book so I can't remember I don't think it was like March Madness or anything but it was it was a really big deal to her to be able to to accept that job Um, but it was also on a day when like Uh, she felt really guilty leaving her kid um, because they had been like the ER all afternoon. Um, So that was the first, like when, as soon as I read that, and I think that in a way it's almost like plagiarism because Doris Burke has chosen to frame her career in that way. Like when she um, answers the question of like, how did this all start? How did you become who you are? She chooses that scene Mm. um and obviously she could have chosen a million scenes but she chose that one and as soon as I read that I was like okay I'm taking that that's how I'm starting too um and it's actually I think the thing I took that feels most invasive and most like like if I were her and I started reading the book that might piss me off I think Mm. has she read the book I don't know I know that she knows about it okay that's all I know
1: okay I bet she has come on
0: wouldn't you like? Wouldn't you read it? Yes. Oh yeah. Come on. Yeah. Nobody just like. I'm not interested.
2: <laughs> I would get
1: the. Yeah, I would get the fucking book and have the audio book in the car. Like, give me a break. Of course. <laughs> no question. One thing about Ruth that is interesting, differentiating her from Doris, although, and you gotta tell me this because I don't know. Is Doris a Hall of Famer right now? Yeah. Okay. Wow. When did, like, when did she go in? I didn't even know that
0: not that long ago okay um like, in the last five years probably
1: that's amazing right like the yeah. fact that doris Burke is a hall of famer and yet like ruth in the book like still she's having to fight for to get exactly the job she wants and i think it kind of it speaks to like a larger like tokenization of women in sports in general, like, yes, we'll give you this hall of fame spot. Yes. We'll give you this, like, right. uh, I don't know. Do you think, are there other things you've seen in the real basketball world that make you hopeful that Doris Burke will be less a token and there'll be many female voices moving forward? Or is there, is there anything you feel positive about in that way, I guess?
0: Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, so I like my theory is that the trio of male announcers who do the finals every year are on the verge of breaking up one way or another. Um, one of them has to retire. I know like uh, Jeff Van Gundy has taken coaching interview job interviews and stuff. Um, so if they don't take the opportunity to kind of blow up that threesome and give her that job, I wouldn't be surprised, but I would be disappointed.
1: Hmm. And um, you're like one of millions who would, who would be in a position. Yeah. I feel like, right. I mean,
0: yeah, I think, I think, yeah, but then again, I don't know what she wants. Like maybe, maybe she, they would offer that to her and she would turn it down for any number of reasons. So. If
1: you were going to guess, what do you think she would do if they offered it to her?
0: I think she would take it. Don't you?
1: Yeah, I do. I think, I think, I mean, I would love to see Doris doing that. I would love to see her doing kind of anything because like a, I was saying before like it still would feel monumental for her to be in big spots um yeah even though she's a household name it's like
0: yeah she still she, she she's technically a has
1: of famer climb their
0: she technically has a full-time package of games but i i feel like her presence sort of wanes toward um the end of the finals like i feel like she's doing it up until the conference finals and then she disappears and she used to go back to the sideline during the finals um but she was last two seasons bubble season and, and this season she was just kind of oh i guess she was doing like espn radio this season
2: hmm. i will say i have a family a male family member who um said uh oh i don't like her her voice just rubs me the wrong way oh, yeah really? that's the line that's uh-huh. the line the line oh, about that- her voice yep really yep. okay yeah oh. Yeah. And, you know, everyone knows what that means. It yeah. <laughs> so, means I fucking hate women. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of, I mean, at, at a certain point in the second season, her voice is even described um, and the way that she tries to control it and make it a little deeper, um, you know, because she knows <laughs> Yeah, there are people out there like that. And I'm sure even lots of women. Um, yeah. So it's rough. It's rough, but it yeah. also feels like, you know, like the more games she's a part of the more her voice just becomes a part of, you know, it's just normal. It's just, you know, everybody calm down.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, people's voices, um, sound insane when they are on the ESPN broadcast, um, when they're outside of the booth, like when they're on the sideline. Um, because they ha- they are actually screaming so loud, mm-hmm. but then the broadcast edits it so that it's like the background noise is lowered and the person's voice is centered, but they were screaming. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds, uh, I, I don't know, I, I think her voice in particular, because it is kind of low... And then like when she's interviewing LeBron during the walkout, she is speaking as loud as she can. And then the noise is adjusted. So it sounds like she didn't need to be screaming.
2: Mm -hmm. Did you try to talk yourself out of writing this book or was it from the beginning? Like I have to do this.
0: No, I I didn't. I thought it was like the best idea I'd ever had. Yeah. Um, And I was like convinced that other this sounds so insane in retrospect, but I was convinced that other people were writing a Doris Burke novel faster than I could write it. Oh, I think this happens to everybody. Like you read the, the, the the announcements of novels coming out and you're like, this sounds exactly like my book and all your friends are like, no, it really doesn't.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but this was so specific that if somebody had really done it, like if somebody had pitched a Doris Burke novel and sold it for six figures and it was coming out before mine, I would be screwed. <laughs> um so every time there was like like around the time that I was starting to write this book, I think David Remnick wrote a huge Doris profile.
2: Oh wow.
0: I was so mad
1: This <laughs> is kind of surprising though that there hasn't been a Doris Burke novel.
0: Right. That's what I thought too. But that, but see, now I know (laughs) that there is not a huge overlap between sports fans and literary fans. Typically people want one or the other. So like the two things I hear in response to this book are either that there was too much basketball or, um, that there was too much like motherhood and family drama.
1: Yeah. I mean, Give me a fucking break. <laughs> that, that's so unfair. I mean, I, before you came on the thing Lindsay and I were talking about is how this book moves. I mean, mm-hmm. whether whatever the book is dealing with, we're moving through it quickly. And the, the moment I, I was talking to Lindsay about the moment where Cheryl is at the end of the driveway and allowing Ruth to kind of go on, you know, go on these trips, do her job. In a lot of books, that would be multiple pages. It would be even maybe a chapter, but it's like we get a paragraph here and it's mm-hmm. devastating. I mean, as soon as I said it, Lindsay goes, oh my fucking God, I know. Yeah. But the book moves through it and that's the strength of the books. So anyone anyone who is criticizing this book as far as like ruminating in either of those arenas is a fucking well, idiot. Well, and
2: something that sets this book apart that I really admire is is how frank it is about how she Ruth doesn't think about being a mother as she when she's at her job um you know it's it's kind of like you know she has to remind herself of it or she can get to it when it's you know penciled in or when she has the time for it but when she's and 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 a lot of that I'm sure is because she has zero time to think other than you know about what she's doing but I just you know like I I would expect you know you come to expect these kinds of narratives to be dripping with m- m- guilt and you know regret and and she's just like you know that's just the way it is and um you know she she not to spoil it for anyone but she has a big decision to make that's related to that um you know but and and so that you know it comes up there but i just i really i thought that was so different you know and so important in in the genre of anything to do with motherhood in in literature
0: that was something that um, there was some there like there was some pushback um, on that kind of at every stage, like with my agent and with my editor, where the concern, as always, is whether Ruth is likable or not, um, and that was that that was the sort of predicted controversy is whether her ability to sort of turn off the motherhood part of her brain while she's working is so offensive that it's going to alienate readers. That Um, is
2: infuriating. that's that's insane.
0: That sucks.
2: But do you guys like,
0: do you guys think about, and I think you might have different answers for this because of different, you have different lives, but like, do you think about your kids when you're not with them?
2: Oh God, I have so many kids. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you have a lot. You have a lot. You have three times as many as I do. I, and I don't remember the last time I was without them. So, yeah, you answer it. It's a trick question. <laughs> I,
1: mean, I mean, when I'm at work, I'm not actively thinking about my kids. No. But
0: yeah. what about when, when I, you're writing?
1: Yeah, no, no. I mean, yeah but also, like, I'm with my kids, and so I'm not with my kids, which I think is, v- you could say, of Ruth as well. Like, even right. though, even though, like, especially early in the book there's a lot of talk about lester like making concessions and he seems to like resent her for those like concessions that he has to make um for her to travel it's like yeah i mean ariana is still like the center of her world like she's still the one having to negotiate problems between lester and ariana i mean it's still like her her child is so central to her life it's like laughable to think that that she's yeah. not I mean even, even if she's not like who the fuck is thinking about their kid while they're like in the middle of their job it doesn't even make sense I don't I don't know how to answer that right I don't yeah. know I don't know
0: yeah I guess the difference is she's chosen to be to not be with her kid for like
2: weeks at a time
1: yeah um, but that is the job
2: which many do is all the job. time which men do, Which a men do all
1: the, the time. time? Totally, 100. Yeah, they're not 100. Yeah,
2: incarcerated right. for it.
0: Yeah. I've never been apart from my kid for a week, but I think it would feel good.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the silence. The silence. Although
0: I think the main the main problem with. Especially, I mean, once your kid is old enough to be away from you for a week, I think it's different when you have, like, a Ruby-sized kid or even a May-sized kid. But, like, yeah. when your kid is old enough that you know they're okay and you are no longer sort of stricken with the anxiety um, regarding their okayness, the problem is that when you're not with them, someone else is. Mm. And best case scenario, it's your spouse, which is a whole yeah thing. Because then you you know they're doing so much for you you owe them so much in return you wish you were with them when you're not with the kid um and you you know you feel guilty that they've taken on so much and i for ruth it's like she had to figure out how to do this even though the whole problem to begin with was her spouse wasn't going to be there like Mm -hmm. he wasn't He wasn't going to pick up the slack. He was going to prioritize his career no matter what. Mm -hmm. So she has all this stuff with her mom um, and all these complicated feelings about having hired, you know, babysitters and having put her kid in daycare so much and stuff. And I think that is its own kind of guilt, but it's separate from the guilt of simply not being with your
1: child all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One thing that is interesting about that, though, is like. You made Lester handsome, very handsome by choice in the book, right? Is he? <laughs> you see fucking handsomeness, you use that phrase, peak handsomeness in the book, and it's like a JVG type character who is like not handsome. So yeah, you're laughing because <laughs> I'm right about this actually. And it's a lot it's a lot like different thinking about him being like a very handsome man doing this as opposed to like a fucking troll JVG man doing this. I I feel like it may, I feel like it's an important distinction, I got to be honest.
0: So my memory of the book, which I haven't read as recently (laughs) as you have.
1: The book that you wrote.
0: The book (laughs) is that he, she reflects a lot on how handsome he was.
1: Oh, no, no. Come on. She literally
0: claims he's still like a silver fox. He's,
1: it says peak handsomeness in his fifties. I think I'm, I think I'm fucking quoting the words you wrote. Jesus Christ.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right.
1: Lindsay, back me up here.
2: Okay. I well, because I was casting the the movie yeah. as I was reading. Hell yeah, sure. And I was saying Claire Danes should play her. Um so Alex and I were kind of talking about that back and forth. But I could not figure out who could play Lester. I couldn't, I could never land on because he's bald, right? He's bald.
1: What's the guy in uh what's oh he's bald. Fuck.
0: Yeah, see this is what I'm sort of stuck on. Like it I can think be a handsome thinks- bald.
1: A oh, nice I love, a, I love a bald man. I love a bald, sure. I love a bald. <laughs>
2: uh, give me all the balds. Ruth
1: I'm, Ruth I'm also kind of loves now. a bald,
0: but I don't know that I love a bald. I don't know that I picture Lester as being peak handsome. I think it's a Ruth thing.
1: No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's what we're saying. Ruth, Ruth, the, the character in your book. Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyway, I just think it's important to note. But, uh, okay,
2: one of the things that I realized after I finished reading it, was we only get to be outside in the in her flashbacks yeah. every other scene we're in the hotel or we're in the stadium that's true we are I never i guess know. at the end in the at the graduation because and it almost feels like the end of like a horror movie when you're finally back outside you know yeah. and you're like i can <laughs> breathe because yeah. she is like finally at a better place and like you know like things are going to progress or whatever but i just i was like wow that that felt like a weight that was necessary to yeah. the narrative um, yeah. and and like she, there's nowhere for her to go that she can have that end of horror movie breathing moment until the very end.
0: So I think you you are the first person to point that out although it was very very deliberate. Good point. Um yeah. And because well I have I'm kind of obsessed with basketball being an indoor sport mm. um cuz it's it's so it's such an intense like fast-paced sport And it just seems like there's something incongruous about like some of the best athletes in the world always being inside. And then, you know, she talks a lot about being in all of these like spaces that are huge and vast and, you know, hard to navigate without a map, but they're all completely like commercialized and, and artificial. So she's always like in the underground of an arena or in some, uh, like airport terminal or in a hotel like she's never and she she has these fantasies these fantasies about quitting and you know getting like a beach house or something um, mm-hmm. and, and taking up jogging and all of that felt really um like vivid when I was writing it and really crucial to the story and then I I sold this book in March 2020 when suddenly mm-hmm. people didn't like people couldn't be together inside anymore
1: great month yeah
0: so all of these um, all of these like really intense crowd scenes and all, you know, the scene where like the air conditioning goes out and yes. she's like sweating in these like concrete hallways, all of those took on like even more of the tinge of a horror movie.
2: Mm-hmm. I, uh, I couldn't shake that, even though I knew that wasn't your intent. I knew it wasn't supposed to, you know, invoke like, oh my God, the pandemic and people being around each other, but I couldn't shake it. And that scene yeah. that you just mentioned when she's you know dripping sweat and then she starts getting sick like I felt I could feel all of that with her there's like
1: three narrative leap forwards in the first six pages of this book and I was wondering what did you read something where you were just like I'm gonna fucking do that I'm gonna like leap forward in this narrative and like reveal a little bit of what's to come or is it something that just kind of like came organically while you were drafting and Ended up sticking. Like, was that a super conscious decision or something that just like was fortuitous?
0: In the first six pages specifically.
1: Yeah, I got them. I got them marked here. Okay. What? So there's. You want to hear all of them here?
0: So the first leap is like from the night she calls her first ever game to the first night of the NBA Finals, like twenty years later, right?
1: There's like, you know. In the days, weeks, and years that followed, she would the incident in her mind until she lost memory to the murky currents of guilt and anxiety and fear. Right. Da, da, da. Then there is Lester Shrugged. She won't be a model. It was a safe bet that against all this, they oh, lost. Yeah. And then there is she owned a single wine-colored blazer that she pulled over a vaguely Catholic blouse. Lester said don't wear that and Ruth Valdin never take it off. These choices would come back to haunt her ten years later. On and on.
0: No, I don't. I think that's just how I write. I don't even think it's that's good.
1: <laughs> I love Aww. it. No I, no, I thought it was very no, depth. no, no. I
0: hundred percent.
1: I think, it's, I think yeah. it's kind
0: of a crutch, honestly. Like instead, I, I get so like squeamish in the present moment that I'm like, don't worry. <laughs> I also know what happens ten years from now.
1: <laughs> well, I what I think it does to the reader is there's a kind of implicit, um promise of control whether or not it's whether or not it's there which in this book it is to say to the reader there are things that are going to happen i know what they are here are some of them keep reading i'll tell you the ones that are really fucking good because i'm not going to tell you those right now and i think i think as a reader you get such a sense of control from those leap for these these leaps forward uh when they're when they're dispersed in the way like they are just quietly they're not loud moments. I mean, the fact that we're talking about a blazer—I uh, don't know—I love that. I love that the moments are are quiet. That that you're that you're leaping forward to. They're not huge.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it also uh, grows out of just the um, the concept of a novel where you're where you're sort of writing the retrospective of somebody's career. Because when you like when I was researching, I could see that video of of Doris calling her first game. And I can see that she's wearing, I can't remember what she's really wearing, but it's quite odd. It's like a blue velvet <laughs> dress with like a doily on it. <laughs> um, and so, but at, from my vantage point, I'm like, that's an absurd thing to wear on television because I know like what happens to her later. I know who she becomes and I know how how strange this, this video is in hindsight. So I guess it felt organic to sort of pepper the narrative with similar um, moments of insight.
2: How did Kareem Abdul-Jabbar come to read this book? And another writer
0: was uh, reading my book and it suddenly dawned on her that she could be of assistance because she has met
2: Kareem several times. Wow. I just watched his episode of Dave. He was on Dave. Do you guys watch that show? Oh. No. Oh, it's so good. It's about uh, Lil Dicky, who's a white rapper. Um, and But it's like it's funny, but it's also like incredibly moving. Anyway, he, there's an episode where Kareem Abdul-Jabbar... Offers to write a profile of Lil Dicky, and wow. he's like wonderful and thoughtful, and by the end, quite alarmed by Lil Dicky's. <laughs> <nurse system.
0: laughs> he is. Um, I didn't have any direct contact with him. Um, his his PR people are pretty protective of him, but um, he did agree to read the book. And he is, from what I've heard, like an incredibly sweet guy.
1: And you got to tell us about. I know this is like this is like the cliche question for you, but like for people who maybe aren't as familiar with your arc, uh, writing two YA books and then writing to, I don't know what the fuck is it called, adult lit fic, fucking I don't know what it's called, but just talk. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Um. Yeah. So, um. I started out writing YA for, I would say like the main reason was because I was young, like Mm -hmm. super young. Um, and I didn't think I could, and I didn't want to try to write literary fiction about adults before I was one. Mm. Um, Mostly out of pride or vanity. I was just like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to fuck that up. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> I mean, so I more didn't try,
0: but I felt like I had uh, some perspective on adolescence, um, particularly because I had been, you know, I, w- I started writing YA novels when I was in my early 20s, but I had been living on my own for a long time. At that point, um, I moved out of my parents' house when I was really young. So I've I felt like just wise enough to say something meaningful about, you know, that process of of moving from childhood to adulthood, um, but also it was it, so you know sort of calculated in so far as I knew there was money to be made in YA and I wanted to make money.
2: How
1: did you
0: um, know that? How did I know there was money to be made?
2: Yeah, because she looked around. <laughs> she lives in the world.
0: Well, it was like it was like the era of like John Green. Mm. Um, so it was, and it was sort of like. Uh, I would say the literary world had suddenly taken to the internet in a really big way. And the people who had massive followings were YA authors at that time. Now it's like everybody, but at the time it was like, John Green was like on YouTube and he had like massive numbers of teenage fans. Um, and his books were like crazy bestsellers and agents were like really hyped to acquire YA so that, that was the road I went down um, and it, it turned out to be like very, very difficult not to um, write the book that I wanted to write within those parameters, but to navigate like the very specific things that, uh, the, that editors and readers want out of YA was just like stressful. Um, it's very
1: give an example
0: they want it to be like well first of all they want you to be something so as a ya author you're either supposed to be like the edgy ya author or the you know the super romantic sweet ya author or you're supposed to be like the dark like twisted horror ya author um and then with with and somehow each one of those is like a subgenre that has very specific conventions and expectations attached to it. Um, and I just wanted to write like regular novels that happen <laughs> to be about teenagers. Um, and there were just very, I think, very few people are actually allowed to do that. And when 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 YA ends up being like a huge subject of. Um, of conversation on Twitter, when it, when it takes over the discourse, so many people want to, want to say like, oh, you can do whatever you want in YA. Like it's such a vast category. Um, nobody reads YA, so no, or, you know, like the, but the people who are, who are saying that, uh, Sally Rooney might as well be YA or whatever, don't know what they're talking about. Cause they don't read YA, but it, I think really like there are few, There are sort of few exceptions. You can point to a few authors who have been successful as YA authors who have had a lot of creative freedom, but for most people, you're sort of locked into the brand that you chose with your debut.
2: Um, Do you feel like nowadays, like every author needs to have some kind of brand Mm -hmm. or some kind of like, I don't know. I find that, um, I guess I find like the questions you're asked about your book as you're trying to sell it <clears throat> and about yourself is like, they're all looking for that.
1: They're all yeah. looking for
2: that, like Instagrammable tweetable, like angle that they can make, you know, really big stuff out of. Yeah. It's like, I just wrote my little book you know, <laughs> and just please give me a lot of money for it and leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. I, I think
0: it well I guess what I would say is that compared to writing YA I think that the sort of like adult literary fiction world is more lenient in that way um I mean like another example of what uh what felt restrictive about writing YA was like with my second YA novel um and it wasn't really my second it was really like the fifth manuscript but in between each book, one was turned down before I published the first book, two were turned down. Like it was just very, it was very laborious, um, to get those books into the world. But the second one I had written, um, sort of a romance kind of like under, under pressure to do so, but it was like offbeat and weird and a little bit dark. And it had a sort of loose, ambiguous ending. Um, and I, I wrote, the book in like a year and turned it in on time. Um, and that ended up just going back and forth with my editor forever, like trying, you know, and, and the 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 editorial notes were often like, you know, like I like this sex scene, but I wonder if two sex scenes in a YA novel is too much. Or like, I you know, this moment is almost like really compelling and really romantic. And I almost really fall for the teenage protagonist's boyfriend here, but I don't quite. And like, can we work on that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in part, these edits were like very shrewd and very much tailored to the market in which I was trying to write, but it felt, it got to be too much. And by the time I was editing like that second YA novel, I was not that young anymore and I was pregnant and I just couldn't, uh, toward the end of that book, I just knew that it would be a while before I was like mentally fixated on the trials and
2: tribulations of, of adolescence. hmm how do you feel about those books now? Um, well, I haven't read them.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's a great answer.
0: Um, I, th- I think, I think I have two, I have two feelings about it. One part of me wishes that I had spent my twenties, like practicing writing the kind of books that I want to write now. Cause I think I would be better for it. I think a lot of the skills that I honed writing YA were kind of specific to YA. Mm. Um, But then at the same time, like I sold those novels um, when my husband was in grad school and like I lived off of that money in my Mm twenties and I, and like I worked part time off and on, but like really that I made money writing novels from the time I was 23 onward. So it's very hard to say like, well, that was a mistake.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's what I love. I mean, I think not having to work some bullshit job for the most part and being able to say you paid your way with writing is fucking awesome. Like yeah. that's a fucking grinder. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I, And like, I think
0: it's like, I think making money from your writing is always sort of what's best for you as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, in so far as it allows you to like devote your time and your energy to writing, you know, assuming you're not independently wealthy, like most of us eventually need to get paid to keep doing it.
2: (laughs) That's the dream.
1: (laughs) Lindsay, I want to go back to what you said, though, when you were asking them about like an Instagrammable, like brand, whatever. Do you feel like with the most recent one, that was, that was something that was expected of you that like, do you feel like that was like implicit in the feedback you were getting?
2: You. Um, no, I don't think that was, I don't, th- I think that's, it just makes it that much easier if you have some, like if you are some sort of like influencer in a way. And then also if like, if you have this thing that I don't know, like I, it that feels like easily presented as like packaged, I don't know. Like yeah. I kept, tra- I kept having a hard time describing my book in that way and maybe that's because maybe that's why my book didn't sell <laughs> but um but it does feel like it does feel like they want it they want you to like have a built-in following they base that on on your social media and so it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know some of the worst people in the world have a really big social media following so also
1: like uh, you know, that- that specific criticism for you it like not i'm not saying that was levied against you necessarily but like you're the wrong person to say that that doesn't exist for in my opinion regardless whatever i mean like the lindsey hunter fans are fucking rabid so
2: no they're not where no, are you people No, no,
1: no. <laughs> they're right here so shut up Show they're up. fucking right here <laughs> this is craziness
2: no no but you know i i, I think um I think there's more. I mean, I, I'm sure there's more I can be doing. There's like.
1: No, I don't that, think so. I don't no, know. Actually, I, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. You're wrong. You,
2: <laughs> you, you got three kids. You got fucking three kids. We talking about? I don't you care. What are you talking about? Um. Yeah, no. that's my brand. That's my brand. I your kids.
1: brand is, well, <laughs> no, your brand is your ripper. I always
2: smell like peanut butter. That's my brand. Oh. Huge,
1: huge plus. Hot. Chunky <laughs> <laughs> um. plus.
2: But I do think, I, I mean, I do think that goes along with like the evolution of, of any writer is like, um, maintaining you, the ness of your product that you're making, mm. but also like keeping up somehow.
1: Like I've yeah. been having
2: a devil of a time, like getting any stories published and like, I love the stories that I'm writing and I feel like mm. they're me, but, but I'm not doing so, I'm not like, I'm not. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm on the side and I keep waiting to step into the lazy river because <laughs> I just can't get in. I can't find my way. And everybody's like floating on by and I'm like, oh,
1: I'm going to well, figure out a way. There's like a wide gulf between just publishing a story online and publishing one that maybe anyone's going to read. I feel like,
2: yeah, totally.
1: I feel like, you know, there's maybe 10 places where you can publish it and not be embarrassed. And then there's maybe th- four places you can publish it and get paid.
2: That's true. True.
1: and that's it yeah and that's even, just being honest i'm not even you
2: know. hoping to get paid i mean like at this point i know it's like, that's what i'm
1: saying i know.
2: take take it <laughs> um but no, i think I you know it. i think that's kind of like uh that's just what happens you know life happens yeah. and um i don't know I just <laughs> have to keep <laughs> keep making the peanut butter sandwiches i don't know metaphorically figuratively literally having a brand is like
0: dreadful i would Mm -hmm. i would think yeah but also i mean there's like a spectrum of authors who can't do it like who can't do the self-promotional stuff there's people in the middle who do it i think with a fair amount of like humility and um good sportsmanship Mm -hmm. (laughs) but then there's people who really really are mostly a brand um Mm -hmm. are they are mostly like you know, they're verified on Twitter and they are on Twitter all day. I'm, I'm fucking verified. Give
1: me the book <laughs> deal.
0: I have a blue
2: check.
1: <laughs> you do? I, uh, yes. Hello, I have a blue check.
0: I didn't it's realize right there. I talking to a blue check. <laughs> um, anyway, I still don't classify you as the kind of person I'm describing. I will be and in part because of where I'm going with this, which is that at the very top or at the very far end of the self-branding spectrum i would say there's a quality in the writing that drops off pretty yeah
2: totally but they don't care you know like no. it's <laughs> um and i don't want that you know but like but it it really does feel like we're rewarding we're re, re, that word is hard to say rewarding the wrong yeah merits right yeah, like totally. because if i don't know i've i've been workshopping this um catchphrase That's if you're, if you're good at Twitter, you're bad at life. And, and i know that there's exceptions to that, but like.
0: No, I think Um, that's right. I also think if you're good at Twitter, you're deeply mentally unwell.
1: mm -hmm. (laughs) Easy, easy. You can also be mentally unwell and bad at Twitter.
0: (laughs) I know. I didn't say that. There's a
1: a couple examples here in this, in this, uh, you know, conversation. So, (laughs)
2: Two to three. Two <laughs> to three. There's two. There's two to three
1: examples. A
2: handful. We'll say a handful. <laughs>
1: there's a three-fingered handful. But...
2: Emily, congratulations on this book.
1: It's Damn. a great book. Everybody's so good. Read this
2: book. I can't doing? wait. I can't wait for my husband to read it. He's a huge NBA fan. He's
1: gonna love it. Ben's gonna love this book. He is
2: not the family member who said that shit about Doris Burke. So nobody at me. I, yeah. I that, was that. that was clear. That was clear. was wonderful she's great
1: she's great i'm so glad people need to read that book um i think you and i talked about it before Lindsay. but like whether or not you're a basketball fan this is a book that uh you should be picking up because it's a it's a rare example of literary fiction that has things happen and also just it moves so
2: yeah, and I think it's going to make you a basketball fan if you're not only yeah. one. I mean, yeah. that's like the NBA is like the most exciting sport that there is right now. I'm sorry. Totally. I know you love hockey. No,
1: no, um, no. no. Hockey's true. great too.
2: Hockey's great too. But Well,
1: no, but what you're saying is true because it's like it's, it's the innovative personalities. Yeah, also. yeah. yeah it's, and it's just like 100%. Um,
2: so anyway, so like get curious. and And yeah. it's like Alex said, even if you don't care about sports at all, it's just if you care about like, women <laughs> yeah and mothers and women in media and you know
1: that balancing raising kids and having yeah. a career I mean my goodness yeah I mean it's all here in this book
2: there's something for everyone
1: yeah it's a ripper so definitely read it
2: what's going on with you you just moved in Let's,
1: yeah we moved into our house finally yeah uh, feels really good um my daughter started preschool.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's been a, it's been a trip. I mean, I know this is all like old hat for you, Lindsay, but like the fucking preschool drop-off line is such a trip. Like just <laughs> seeing this fucking intensity of these parents about like <laughs> small little shit. And I'm like, I'm an unhinged person, but like seeing some of these people, I'm like, I'm good. All right. No, my friend, I have a
2: friend who um, I, he came to my wedding when he only had one kid and And I sent him a picture from it. This was years later when he, now he has three and he was like, oh, he's looking at the picture of him and his little daughter. And he's like, remember when having just one (sighs) child was like this cool personality quirk you had and you could just like, (laughs) it was like this like thing you did. It wasn't like your whole life. And I feel like there's so many of those kinds of parents at my daughter's preschool where it's like, like it's their first and only child. You know, and so it's like he's got like the super expensive kicks, you know, and like the the gelled hair, and everything is designer, you know, and like Judith is like, her shorts are falling down. (laughs) There's something in her hair, you know, like she's you know screaming and snotty, and I'm like, "You're
1: fine." I love it. I love it. (laughs) I was so I was so anxious for the first day, and then we dropped off my daughter and you know, you you like kind of queue up in line in the car and you get out of the car, backpack, mask. Okay. Here comes the teacher. The teacher comes up and I'm like, all right, I love you, sweetie. And she's like, bye. Love you. Done. Like just into it. So it made, it made it so much. I mean, that's one of those moments where I was just like, okay, I'm going to be lucky on this one. She likes school. This is good. I'll take it.
2: Yeah. She's, she's thriving.
1: She's thriving. Yeah. It's good. What about you? What's been going on?
2: I've had not a moment to write or even look oh, at anything. Yeah.
1: You've been busy.
2: I, and I thought, so like my oldest, my two oldest are in school full time. Right. My daughter goes three mornings a week. And so I thought, all right, well, I have like, because also at the same time that everyone started school, my daughter decided she's not going to nap anymore. So I thought I would have nap times and I don't. Um, oh, I didn't
1: know she was napping before then.
2: Oh yeah. She was napping and now she has re- just decided she's done with that. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. or no nap. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, and then she's also going through this really clingy phase. So she wants Mm. me like Mm -hmm. right next to her all the time.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, at all bedtimes. And so it's a lot, it's a lot. And, uh, so I just haven't had time. Um, and then the other thing is like, as soon as my kids went to school, I was like, I just want to clean my house. Cause it hasn't mm-hmm. like, when you try to clean your house and you have kids, they're like, what are you doing? I want to do it. I want to spray the thing. You right. know, I'm like, going to
1: vacuum. I oh, know yes. I'm going to vacuum. And yeah, then they do yeah, a yeah.
2: terrible job and you can't wrench it away from them. And then God, you your fucking other kids,
1: suck at vacuuming.
2: Yes. You're terrible at it. You're, you're so and your bad. other kids are like in the corner setting a fire, mm-hmm.
1: you know? And so
2: it's like, it's just nice to be like, I can focus on this bathroom and right. listen to my podcast. Totally. Um, and so like catching up on the house has been, now it's dirty again. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I, you know, we'll see.
1: I have like, two, so we drop my oldest off at eight fifty. 50.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, the, I put the little one in the car. I drop off the older one. We come back and then basically from the time we get back, I can, the, the little one is going to go down for a nap like in the carrier on my chest for like an hour and a half to two hours. And then I go pick up the other one. I, I luck out on that big time. Yeah. So it's been my like watching incredibly fucked up documentaries time. Now <laughs> I'm watching like fucked up murder documentaries Yes. and name one. Okay. Honestly, if you've watched this, I, I really hope you have watched this so we can talk about it because it was there. It's on Netflix. It's called American Murder, The Family Next Door, or something. Have you seen? I know that? exactly
2: what you're talking about. I haven't okay. seen it. I have oh heard about it. Oh my
1: fucking yeah, god! Yeah, I heard it was fucked I up. I couldn't yeah. even deal with it. I, I, I watched it, and then I was like, I don't think I can like just go on with my day. Like it was like, <laughs> it was. I need you to watch it because I will. it was. I, I promise. So one weird part about it is it's like suburban Colorado, where I, not where I grew up in Colorado, but it's like it's like vaguely in the, in the, in the world that I grew up and what it's all, okay. It's all body cam footage and all social media push, all social media footage. So what you're seeing is actual footage of this guy lying. And like, (gasps) it is uh, when I was trying to go to bed later that night and I was thinking about the way this thing ends, I was like, I don't actually think I can go to sleep. This is like, (laughs) You got to fucking watch this because I'm going to watch so it. And
2: now, oh now God. Wednesday morning, instead of writing, I'm going to watch that documentary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: that's why we get along. I mean, that's the important stuff.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's just research. I'm sure for something oh, down God the line. Damn okay? it.
1: It's too much. I could not fucking believe it. It was I like, wait. I, mean, I mean, I'm warning you. It is fucked. It okay. is f- super fucked, but,
2: uh, okay. So I'll never speak to you again, but it'll be worth it.
1: Yeah, no, it'll be worth it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh,
2: I'm uh, I'm reading a really great book right now called Sorrow oh, and Bliss. I don't know it. I think it's Meg Mason is the author. Good name. Um, and it's it really lives up to that because one moment you're like, oh my god, that's so sad, that's so devastating, mm-hmm. and the next moment you're like cracking up, laughing. It's British. Oh my god. Okay. Um,
1: I how just did thought, it How did it come into like your your consciousness here?
2: I always so if someone mentions a book and and it's someone I don't think is an idiot, I'm like okay, <laughs> and I'll go like go look at it, and then mm-hmm. usually like. I, I don't like immediately go get it or put it on hold at the library until I see it again. Mm-hmm. And so I've saw, I've seen, I saw like three different people say they love that book. Um, oh, wow, okay. Non-idiots. So it's a so, list of
1: like what? Six people.
2: <laughs> yeah. I just wait for the same six people to tell me yeah, what they're reading. Totally.
1: Absolutely. It has
2: like a, it was, it's like, it's like mimics chiclet ish cover, but the woman that's like a, it's like a abstract, like painting of a woman, not abstract, but it's, um, I don't know what the word I'm trying to think of, but she just has her head against the wall. Okay. Because it's about depression. Got it. Um anyway, it's a freaking delight. So awesome. Yeah. Do that in re- American Murder.
1: Oh my god. I was rereading some Joy Williams stuff yes. just for fun because as I was moving. I'm sure you've had this experience as you're moving, you know, you're going through all your books and you're like, what the fuck? I have so many books and I Mm -hmm. care about none of them except for this one. And so I like grabbed all, all my joy Williams stuff and I was rereading the quick and the dead. And um, that was really fun to just go back in and kind of be surprised by it again. Um,
2: Yeah. She's one that I feel like um, every time I go back to her, it's different.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe just maybe that, just, maybe that happens with everything. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, it's like, I, I don't know. Oh, but I, mean, I get it. I think the, the good stuff. I think the good stuff is definitely that way. I, I was actually surprised. Um, I think if you would have asked me cold, I would have said, well, fuck yeah, it's funny. But like, it was, it was way funnier than I remembered. And uh, <laughs> like, I was just like, I was laughing the whole time. Uh, I think the quick and the dead in my memory was like a little bit more severe. And um i was sort of breaking entering it's a little bit more it's a little bit looser a little bit lighter like obviously it's still joy williams but but yeah no this this past time when i went back through that i was like oh my god this is still so goddamn funny
2: Um, i wonder if it corresponds to like whatever was going on in your life or my life going back to something you
1: know it's got to i think it's got to right yeah
2: i remember trying to read um i don't know why but every time i think of joy williams i think of renata adler Mm -hmm. maybe i learned about them at the same time but um yeah I remember trying to read Speedboat and I hated it. And
1: I've I was never like, read it.
2: Why are people so obsessed with this book? And then I went back to it and I was like, oh my God, this book
1: is so good. Oh, really? <laughs> you oh, know, awesome. and I feel
2: like I tried to read it at first when I was tired. I don't know. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't remember, but return to the books that didn't speak to you at first. I say.
1: I agree. I think so. Yeah. I think sometimes, that, sometimes that stuff that you really struggle with at first, you're like, holy fuck. Mm-hmm. You can kind of, cr- you can kind of like crest and it's like all right I'm, I'm with it i'm with it
2: yeah i think there's a difference between like this book is trash and mm-hmm. i want nothing to do with it and this book is just not for me right now
1: you know totally definitely
2: yeah definitely all right I'm well we did about. it
1: we did it yeah it's good to be back
2: yeah that's crazy right
1: mm-hmm. i hope you guys I mean-
2: are happy to hear from us and
1: if you're not fuck you
2: <laughs> real heads no yeah that's right All right, go have fun in your new house. I will, bye. Bye. I'm a Writer But is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Yeah, yeah!